one of the greatest privileges I have uh, being one of the pastors at this church is to get to be a part of membership interviews. We have a membership process here. Many of y'all know this. And membership interviews are such a joy to get to be a part of, to get to meet with some of the people who the Lord is drawing to our church to get to ask them some questions, to get to know them better as they're going through this process. We just um, talked about 20 new people that we're about to vote in as new members at our next family meeting. That is such a privilege to be a part um, of a church like that. One of the questions that we ask um, new members coming in, all the pastors ask this question, is we want to ask prospective members, what is the gospel? and have people answer that. What is the gospel? We ask that for many reasons, but a couple of really important reasons is that tells us so much when we hear somebody talk about what the gospel is. The gospel is important, as we know, because it's what God uses to save us and bring us into his kingdom in the first place, but it's also critically important for us to know the gospel as a church family together because It is the message that we are called to walk in step with. Galatians 2 teaches us. So in other words, you can walk out of step with the gospel, or you can walk in step with the gospel. And so for church members here, you will be tempted at so many places to walk out of step with the gospel. And yet God, through the message of what Jesus has done for us, changes our whole lives. We extend love because we have been first shown love. We extend grace because we've first been shown grace. We extend forgiveness because Jesus has forgiven us. And on and on and on, these ripple effects have impacts in our lives. So I ask that question because it is so important. And what if I turn the question around on you all today? Maybe some of you haven't gone through that membership process in the same way. Y'all joined, many of y'all have been members here for 50 years or more. If you were asked today to answer, what is the biblical gospel? What would you say? How would you answer that? I would imagine there's lots of us who hear all sorts of answers to that question. Many good answers to that, by the way. There's not just one way to talk about that. Here's some of the answers that that I say regularly, and I also hear regularly, and I'm sure you've heard some of these too. The gospel is God loves me, has a wonderful plan for my life. There's some truth in that. I hear God loves me and he sent his son to die for me. Amen. I agree with that. I hear God so loved the world he gave his only son and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Amen. John 3.16, a great way to talk about the gospel. I hear I'm a sinner and Jesus is my savior. Amen. I agree with that. But what all these expressions and articulations of the Gospels lack, though, is they don't talk about the glorious and wonderful result of the Gospel. Often, even when I'm talking about the Gospel myself, I don't talk about the great and glorious goal of the Gospel or result of the Gospel. John 3.16 pushes us that way a little bit. We can have eternal life, but there's got to be more we should talk about when we're talking about that eternal life, right? What does that eternal life look like? What's the greatest part about that eternal life? I I mean, living forever sounds really good, 
But can we agree that living forever will only be good if what we're doing forever really makes us happy and really satisfies us? So that's what I mean by the goal, the, the, the result of the gospel. And I think today in our passage, we're going to be shown, Matthew is going to give to us, he's going to tell us about the great result of the gospel. Let me first give us the main idea of our passage today, and then as we unpack that, I hope we will see clearer. I hope we will marvel at. I hope we will be able to treasure more the gospel that we sing about, that we read about, that we talk about, that we pray about, that we preach about week in and week out, that we will be able to marvel at and treasure more that gospel after we see what Matthew wants us to see in our passage today. Here's the main idea. Then we'll unpack it. Jesus the sinless Son of God is judged and forsaken so that he might be vindicated in his identity and victorious in his mission. Before we dive into that, I just want to quickly zoom out and talk about some important aspects of the Old Testament that weigh heavily on our passage today, really quick. I think without these, we won't appreciate the passage as much. Let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2, really quick. The great and glorious reality at the beginning of the Bible is the God who is self-existent created human beings. He created human beings in his image, for his glory, and for his presence. That's what garden, the Garden of Eden was all about. Can we agree with that? The presence of God. That is what you and me were made for. And you know that that didn't last long. Genesis 3 came. Satan tempts Eve. Adam abdicates authority, responsibility. They sin. They rebel against God. That sin separates them and us from God's presence, from their creator. And what does God do? He has to send them out of the garden, out of his presence, okay? But even in that judgment at the beginning of the Bible, we're given a promise, right, of one who will come, one who will come, be born of a woman, Genesis 3.15, who will crush the head of our great enemy and put back together what was fractured and what was broken there at the very beginning of the Bible. Do you see that? And I want to submit to you today that the rest of the Old Testament is anticipation for that promise. The rest of the Old Testament is anticipation for this promise. So all of that to say, we're being taught throughout the Old Testament that our greatest problem, greatest problem is our own alienation from God, okay? Our own alienation from God caused by our sin. Throughout the Old Testament, we are seeing God, listen to this, 
he he acts sovereignly and graciously throughout the Old Testament, working to draw nearer and nearer to his people through the systems of the tabernacle and the temple, the gospels, here he is. God the Son shows up in the New Testament. He's drawing nearer and nearer to us. So I think this background is really important as we come to our passage today to help us see the significance of what Jesus is doing on the cross. What is Jesus doing on the cross? He's doing a whole lot more than just saying to the world, I love you, I love you, I love you. He's actually accomplishing something on the cross. He is doing something on the cross. And that's what we want to talk about today. In our passage, Jesus is still on the cross. He's hanging there. He's struggling. He's dying. He's being judged and forsaken, which is the first point that I need us to see, that that Matthew wants us to see. In verses 45 and 50, this is the first thing we need to see. Christ is judged and forsaken. Verses 45 and 50. Look at how that begins. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Okay, some of your Bibles fill that in. That's noon, 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., and the text says there was darkness over the entire land. This is, this is a miracle. This is a supernatural miracle. That's the brightest and the hottest part of the day. And the lights are out. It's dark. Many passages in the Old Testament, they teach us that the sky being darkened was a sign of God's judgment. Okay? So, Places that are most popular to see that, Exodus 10, you can see this. As God is pouring out his judgment on the people in Egypt, he darkens the sky there as he's moving through those plagues. Probably most important for us to see today, this will be on the screens, Amos chapter 8, verses 9 through 10 says this. On that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon And darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist. I will make it like the morning for an only son. And the end of it like a bitter day. Notice two things here about this judgment that's happening. First, I think we should see that the greatest evil that this world has ever known was taking place on this day. This was, morally speaking, the darkest day this world has ever known. The Father doesn't want anybody to miss that. But second, like I said, Jesus, there's judgment going on here. That's the whole point in these Old Testament passages. Darkness is a sign of God's judgment. Make no mistake. But here's the thing. Judgment's being poured out, but who is it being poured out on? Jesus. As he hangs on the cross in our place, he doesn't deserve it. And that's what Matthew needs us to see. That's what God wants us to see in this passage. Jesus is being judged. 
which is incredible. All of the injustices that are happening throughout this passage. And as this judgment is here, this judgment is being given to the Son. And surely one of the worst aspects of judgment comes in verse 46. Look at verse 46. At the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is one of the saddest and most mysterious verses in all the Bible. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, 1. I say this is one of the saddest verses in all the Bible because we've already watched Jesus' closest friends, his disciples, abandon him. And, and here, Jesus, in taking the sin of the world upon himself and therefore the wrath of God upon himself, he experiences abandonment from his own father. As I was thinking about how to understand this, some of these scriptures in the New Testament may, may help us. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. What was, what was happening? The Father made him to be sin who knew no sin. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Romans 3, 25 and 26. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. A propitiation is a wrath satisfier. Jesus was satisfying the wrath of God. Why? so that we, he could be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Listen to this. For the, for the eternal son who had enjoyed sweet, perfect fellowship with his father for all of eternity, this moment of forsakenness would have been horrific. Horrific. But I also said this is a statement that is incredibly mysterious um, because even as we try and think about it, we don't believe, we don't believe that the Trinity was somehow broken here on the cross, there's many ladies in here that are in our Trinitarian class, on, in our equipped classes. You're studying the Trinity right now. No Orthodox Christian has ever believed that somehow the Trinity was broken on the cross. We don't believe that. So this can't be an ultimate or a kind of a hopeless abandonment. Because even in Psalm 22, where Jesus is quoting from, that passage, that psalm, it ends in vindication and victory. But... What we have here is what we have here, what Jesus says, and it has to mean something. It has to mean something. Jesus is hanging in our place, and he really does experience an abandonment from his father as the father made him to be sin who knew no sin. 
he knew no sin. Of course, the bystanders, as you see the passage in verse 47, they misunderstand Jesus' cry. Eli, Eli, they think he's calling down Elijah. Uh, Evidently, there was this developed belief uh, that because Elijah didn't die in the Old Testament and was taken up to heaven, that somehow Elijah could be summoned to help people that were in need. There's some evidence that that had been a developed belief, which may explain what's going on and why they say what they say there. But I think the point is, is that these bystanders are continuing, as we saw last week, to deride and mock Jesus. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't give him the, don't give him the, the sour wine yet. Let's, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But in Jesus' moment of great derision here and agony here and suffering, we get a glimpse of hope in verse 50. And I want you to see this. The passage here begins to turn in a very different direction. Is Jesus just a weak and powerless man whose life is ending because he didn't quite live careful enough at the end of his life? No. Oh, no. This, church family, is the sovereign Son of God accomplishing the will of his Father. That's who this is. And in verse 50, we should have the words from John 10, 17 ringing in our ears. Verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Verse 50 tells us that Jesus dies, but not in weakness or defeat. He is in complete control. He lays down his life. He ultimately yields up his spirit. And what we are going to see with the rest of our passage is that Jesus, the Son of God, will be vindicated, proved to be right. That's what vindication means. He will be vindicated in his identity and he will be victorious, Matthew wants us to see, in what he came to do. All of the mockery, it was just painful to listen last week, to count up as I was prepping, to count up the times that the mocking was taking place, five or six times in the last passage, mockery, derision, reviling upon reviling. And in this section, we're gonna see that stop. And instead, what we will see is nature itself, the centurions that are gathered around, even the Father himself, shouting for Jesus' vindication and victory in this section. And that's what we see in verses 51 through 56. Look there with me. We're going to see Christ vindicated and victorious here. And in these testimonies too, and vindications from Jesus, like I said, Jesus' true identity, but showing us he is victorious in what he came to do. How do I know that Matthew doesn't want us to miss this? Look at how verse 51 starts. And behold, and behold, in other words, Pay attention to this, reader. See this, reader. Look at what happens, reader. 
we get to see who and what here is going to be shouting for Jesus' vindication. So first we see the testimony of several supernatural miracles in this section. Who and what is shouting this? The testimony we see from different miracles, supernatural miracles, the first thing that Matthew lists is the temple curtain that is being torn from top to bottom. Remember I asked in my introduction what the glorious goal, result of the gospel is. Verse 51 is telling us about it. The temple curtain from the top to the bottom is ripped open. The temple that Jesus said he would come to destroy and rebuild in three days, we know at this point Jesus was talking about his body, right? We've heard that over and over. This temple, the temple in the Bible was the meeting place, right? It was the meeting place between God and man. And that meeting, that presence was limited, right? In the earthly temple. And Jesus' statement that he would be the new temple means that Jesus was claiming that he would become the new meeting place between God and man. Jesus' death, we've seen this in other weeks and seen it foreshadowed over and over. Here it's coming to its fulfillment. Jesus' death would fulfill the entire sacrificial system that was tied up in the temple, right? The system that would allow only the high priest, only the high priest to enter behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies once per year. It was an incredible picture, that whole process, right, of how our sin is serious and it separates us from God. But now, Matthew is saying, behold, look what his death is bringing about. Behold, the curtain of separation is ripped down from the top He goes at great length to say, none of it's left. There's no threads left holding it together. It's ripped from the top all the way to the bottom. None of the separation is left. Jesus' death solves humanity's greatest problem, their alienation from God. Matthew's telling us that Jesus' death is bringing us back to God. Do you see that? Peter speaks about the massive significance of this truth in his letter. 1 Peter 3.18, this is a great verse for you to memorize. 1 Peter 3.18 clearly, succinctly tells us the gospel. For Christ also, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why did he do that? That he might bring us to God. That's what Jesus was doing that he might bring us to God. We see other miraculous events happening all throughout. We see the sky being darkened. We already looked at that. The earthquake, which split rocks open. And related to that, tombs open up, the passage says. The text says, many dead saints came to life after Jesus' resurrection and appeared to many in Jerusalem. What in the world should we make of that verse? I don't want to say much about it because the Bible doesn't comment much about it, Um, but it's important because it's here, and I think there's a couple things we should say about it. 
Notice verse 53. Look in your Bibles in verse 53 and notice that this resurrection happens after Jesus is raised from the dead. So in other words, this event is tied primarily to Jesus' resurrection and not his death. And I think that's important theologically because that's the truth that Scripture holds up consistently throughout the New Testament. The pattern we see in places like 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23. So here we're seeing a kind of foretaste resurrection, church family. If anyone wants to know if Jesus' death and resurrection means something for us, you don't need to wonder anymore. You don't need to wonder anymore. Will his death count for, for us in any meaningful way? You don't need to wonder anymore. Yes, it will. Another thing I think we should say is one great question that many had through the years is will Christ's death count anything for Old Testament saints? Well, and that's who these people were, the text says. These were people who died before Jesus accomplished any of this. This text should show us without a doubt that far from being forgotten about, Old Testament saints who put their hope and trust in God will be resurrected. Here, it's only many, the text says. One day, they all will be. One day, we all will be. And I think the point, I believe, that Matthew is saying to us in this section that's supposed to be vindicating the power and the claims of Jesus is this supernatural, yes, even limited resurrection serves as a powerful, undeniable proof that Jesus really is who he says he is, and he really can do what he says he can do. Do you see that? All of these testimonies all scream in a chorus together, Jesus is who he says he is. Just in case anyone was left wondering last week, after all the mocking and the derision and the reviling, and we were wondering, wondering Jesus, was Jesus tried and left wanting? Was Jesus tried and left wanting? It might, we might have been wondering, who's winning here after last week's passage? And we don't have to wonder, after seeing our passage today, church family, Jesus wasn't tried and found wanting. Jesus was tried and found victorious. He was tried and found victorious. That song that we sing together regularly, in fact, last week we sung it together. I was thinking of the lyrics of it as I was preparing. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. Do you see the price, church family, of our redemption? Jesus in our place, taking the wrath of God. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold. What is he doing? Bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured. Love untold. Oh, we should sing that with such joy and passion. So yes, Jesus is who he says he is. Matthew wants us to see that. Jesus is hanging in victory. He was victorious in accomplishing what he came to do. In chapter one of Matthew, do you remember how long ago that was? We were in chapter one of Matthew? Wow. In chapter one, what does God say? Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And what will that do for us? It will bring us back to God. Amen. 
Church family, hear this. Jesus, the Son of God, in taking the full wrath of God upon himself, he experienced abandonment from his Father so that anyone who would trust in the work of Jesus would be brought near to his Father. I'm going to say that again. Jesus, on the cross, taking our wrath, he experienced abandonment from the Father so that anyone who trusts in him might be brought near to the Father. Do you see that? That is grace unmeasured, love untold. And I hope we see that. We have more testimony in the passage, testimony of different witnesses. And I hope you notice in these witnesses, especially the centurion, the contrast from last week's passage. The centurion in verse 54, and it says, and those who were with him, read that, keeping watch over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. A better translation is terror, fear. And they said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Truly, this was the Son of God. So the darkness in the sky, the earthquakes that are going on, Jesus' cry of desolation on the cross, all convinced these guards that were looking on, this execution was very different than other executions that they had been a part of. I can imagine they're probably remembering, they at least heard about the questioning of Caiaphas a few weeks ago, the high priest, when Caiaphas looked at Jesus and he said, you remember this? I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the son of God. And Jesus said, you've said so. Other gospels say, I am. The last time we heard the title, Son of God, it was last week, when the religious leaders are mocking Jesus and saying, you're not the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, get off the cross. Now look at this turn of events. Roman pagans confessing Jesus' true identity. What a vindication. What a turn of events. Truly, this was the Son of God. Do you see the the massive contrast that Matthew wants us to see in in a short amount of verses? Not only were the centurions witnesses to all of this, but Matthew tells us in verses 55 and 56 that certain women were there looking on. Verses 55 and 56, many women were there watching and looking on. It says that it was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. These women are going to be very important as the narrative unfolds in the coming weeks, church family. At least two things we can say quickly about why these verses are here. First, it shows that Matthew is interested in writing history and not imaginary fables. Matthew is interested in writing historical fact for us, not imaginary fables. Why do I say that? Well, unfortunately, women at this time in Jewish culture were not viewed very highly. They would not have typically been chosen to be reliable testimony. Matthew records them, though, as the very first of the observers who were not there as critics and mockers. This should give us great confidence in this narrative. Verses like this are all over the Gospels. For the gospel writers to say, this is true. 
you can go ask these people. They were there. They watched it all. The other thing that I think it foreshadows is the type of kingdom that Jesus is establishing. The type of kingdom. It's not based on cultural or worldly power structures. Just remembering my own testimony. Remembering the words of Paul as he's speaking to the whole church in Corinth in chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1.26, where he says, Not many of you, Jesus' people, will be wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, to bring to nothing the things that are it's showing us that Jesus' kingdom is going to be built by all kinds of people who the culture around us might say, I don't really know if there's any value in those people. Isn't that hope for you and me? If you ever feel insecure, God came to save anyone who can be humble enough to understand their need for him. That's who he's here to save. In conclusion, I want to remind you of the verses. I'm the worship pastor. Of course, I'm going to talk about song lyrics. Y'all knew this, right? I want to remind you of the lyrics we sang at the beginning this morning. It said, though the sun had ceased its shining, though the war appeared as lost, we said in the same verse, do you remember, Christ had triumphed over evil. It was finished upon the cross. It occurred to me this week, church family, that Jesus cried, listen to this, Jesus cried, my God, I am forsaken, so that you and me for all of eternity would never have to. Jesus experienced abandonment from his Father so that you and me on our worst days of suffering can say, I'm never abandoned. Ever. I was thinking about the church in Ukraine this week and, and thinking, Jesus cried, my God, I am forsaken, so that every believer in Ukraine would never be forsaken, even in this horrible moment in their country. And we must continue to pray for Jesus' nearness to be felt by, those, by his people there now. Church family, take heart. Our greatest problem our greatest problem, our alienation from God, has been solved at the cross. God's judgment against us has been taken away. Our separation from God, gone, so that now and every day, as Hebrews 4.16 says, we can draw near to the God of the universe with confidence and trust. We will find grace. We will find mercy and help in our times of need. Is that not good news? Come to him. Go to him. The wall of separation has been turned down. How should we respond? Well, I need to make something really clear. If you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus. I don't want to give the indication that somehow Jesus' work automatically reconciles everybody in the universe back to him. No Christian has ever believed that. Jesus' disciples didn't believe that. 
The Bible's clear, consistent teaching is that we have to put our trust in Jesus' work for his death to count for us. Have you trusted in the name? I don't know who all is sitting in this room. If you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, have you trusted in the name, the only name in heaven and earth given among men by which you can be saved? Have you trusted in that name that can save you, that can fix your alienation from God, that causes all the suffering that we experience? Have you trusted in that name? You must trust in him today. In a second, as we sing a final song, I'll be standing here at the front with other pastors. If you want to come and pray during that last song, you can. And I would encourage you to do that today. But church family, and for those who are here that consider themselves believers, what do I have to say for us in our response? I don't know what better thing to say is, is, maybe as cliche as this sounds, I don't know, Enjoy, church family, enjoy unhindered fellowship with your father this week. Have you taken that for granted? I have. I have. I've taken that for granted. We should relish in, we should enjoy unhindered, the blessing that we have of unhindered fellowship We have that now, Hebrews tells us, and one day we will fully have that perfectly in the future. Surely then, our greatest joys are found now in drawing near to the God who created us. How is that going for you? Are you neglecting being with the Lord? You are missing out on an enormous blessing. And let me tell you, our great enemy wants nothing more than to distract us with the most petty insignificant things. Have you taken it for granted that you can draw near to the God who created you? Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 is how we'll end. Just We started here with our call to worship. This is a great exhortation, I think, for us. Therefore, brothers, sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, okay, what should we do? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. How will you plan to draw near to your Lord, to your Savior, to God today, this week, this year, How will you plan to do that? How will we plan to draw near to the God who went to such great lengths of suffering in order to bring us to himself? Don't miss out. Don't miss out. Let me pray. Lord, we praise you. We praise you for sending your son to die in our place, to receive the wrath that we deserved. Oh Lord, we should see the price of our redemption. I pray that we have today more the price of our redemption. Thank you for bringing many sons to glory through your death, Jesus. 
I pray that we would celebrate in that as a church family well, week in and week out. We would never take it for granted and that we would walk in step with this gospel. It would change how we talk with one another, how we treat one another, how we love one another, how we forgive one another. That you would open our eyes more to the great and glorious result of the gospel that we have been brought back to you both now and fully and finally in the future, in the presence of the one who created us. Oh, what joy will fill our heart that we can't even comprehend. Help us long for that day more, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.